Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Um, so I'm going to talk about solutions. I'm going to focus on renewable energy solutions, and, and in the discussion period, we can go beyond that. Um, but I, I did want to start by reinforcing what some of the other speakers have pointed out, and that is that climate change is really an urgent problem. So look, we've got all these different problems that we're dealing with. But climate change is such a big one, people are finally starting to call it a, an existential crisis. And that really is not an exaggeration. I'm going to repeat actually what Brad said. A lot of people say these weather extremes that we see represent a new normal. Not really, because things keep changing. We keep getting surprised. So I like to call it the new abnormal. And if you, if you look at some of these events, uh, you can see here uh, a, a drought. Uh, in the case of Syria, there's a strong connection between the Syrian drought and the resulting civil war there. Uh, wildfires uh, in California, seawater flooding of Miami. It was pointed out that maybe in Arizona, you know, you, you, you can't talk about running out of water. Uh, if you're in Florida, you're not supposed to talk about rising sea level, okay, because people want to st keep, uh, still keep selling condos. Uh, you've seen what's happened to the intensity of hurricanes. Um, it's estimated that uh, uh, the wind speed goes up about five miles an hour for every degree Celsius uh, increase in, in temperature. And, and the power of a hurricane uh, goes as the cube of, of the wind speed. So the, it, it, the intensity is really increasing. Uh, Beetle Kill, if you go up to, in Rocky Mountain National Park, this is a picture I took a few years ago. You're going to see a lot of dead trees. Uh, coral bleaching, there have been three global coral bleaching events uh, since 1998. Uh, it's estimated that on the order of half, uh, the coral in the Great Barrier Reef is, is now dead. I mean, th this is incredible. So I want to talk a little bit about the cost. So uh, Scott talked about the cost that we have to spend to address climate change. I want to talk about the cost if we don't address climate change. And that is the cost of these weather events. So for, for many, many years, if you looked at the biggest weather events, the, the billion-dollar events, the average cost to the U.S. economy was about $50 billion a year. In 2017, we topped $300 billion. And all these colored graphs here are all since uh, 2005. So we've seen this dramatic increase in the cost of, of dealing with this damage. Um, and I might point out uh, there was an article by AccuWeather. AccuWeather estimated that the 2018 California fires, so if you add up all the impacts, uh, cost $400 billion uh, to, the, to the economy, which is just enormous. And, and also, these things don't account for health effects. Uh, you know, and, and there have been various studies showing extreme health effects due to burning fossil fuels. So I don't know how many of you are Rolling Stones fans, um, but I think this is a, a question we need to be asking ourselves. All right, I want to talk about, we, we talked about, you know, where the emissions are. If you draw a pie chart and you look at the different emissions, this one right here, this is the big wedge. 72% of, of it is energy. This is burning fossil fuels. So when Scott says we need to stop burning stuff, what he's referring to is that's the bulk of the problem. Not that we don't want to deal with these other things, uh, better agriculture, industrial processes, uh, 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 far, uh, uh, we have to stop deforestation, we need to uh, 
uh, plant more forests. All these things are helpful, but this is the real thing, okay? So the fossil fuel industry would love for you to write articles about let's eat less beef, okay? But in fact, that has to be the thing that we really focus our attention on. So the number one goal is to drive carbon emissions to zero as fast as we can. All right, so before we look at how to do that, let's, let's evaluate how well we're doing. So in this graph, the, there's two plots here, and this is actually the billion tons of oil equivalent in terms of energy use. So this is fossil fuels, and this is renewable energy and nuclear power. Most of this now is renewables. And we talk about how renewables are growing exponentially, and that is a great thing. Unfortunately, even though the percent increase uh, has not been as high for fossil fuels, they still keep going up, and the gap has grown. You know, for, for many years, we were seeing uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere go up on the order of about 2, 2.3 parts per million per year. And from 2017 to 2018, it went up three and a half parts per million. So actually, things are getting worse, and we have to turn that around. So what do we need to do? I've listed four steps. I think most people agree energy efficiency is the low-hanging fruit. It's the most cost-effective thing to do. There's huge opportunities for energy efficiency. We need to maximize it. Then we need to electrify everything we can. Why? Because if you look at the third step there, we can provide that electricity with wind and solar, and we can also add storage to the mix. As you'll see, and, and, and as I think Scott pointed out, wind and solar have come down dramatically in cost, and they basically have zero carbon emissions. And then fourth, control that electricity demand. When we add, when we switch from a baseload coal plants uh, to, uh, renew uh, to renewable wind, renewable solar. Those are variable supplies, and utilities have to deal with that. And one thing we can do is control the demand to match the supply, and I'll talk about that later. All right, maximize efficiency. This is actually a study that I led in 2006. It was published in January 2007. It's a 200-page report tackling climate change in the U.S. We did it. We, we couldn't get government funding. This was uh, during that, that administration. We did get volunteers to do all this work. And we came up with this wedges chart that looks at the various wedges of emissions reductions out to 2030. And what I want to point out here is that really big wedge there is energy efficiency. And in fact, in this particular study, 57% of the uh, carbon emissions reductions were due to efficiency and 43% from renewables. If you look at the International Energy Agency, uh, several years ago they looked at, well, where do we need to invest our money if we want to keep the temperature rise to less than 2 degrees Celsius? And that's this last bar chart. And you can see this is efficiency, the purple. The green is renewables. And then some nuclear and some CCS, which is carbon capture and storage. But again, efficiency is the biggest. Renewables are the second biggest. And when it comes to efficiency, buildings are really a key here. So um, I know this diagram is a little complicated, so I want to focus you on the right side. This is from the Energy Information Administration. It looks at energy flows. And this is where they wind up. 28% of our energy is consumed by transportation, 32% by industry, 40% by buildings. Now, some of you have probably seen pie charts that show transportation is bigger than buildings. Why is that? Because in those pie charts, they, they, they separate out electricity generation as a separate uh, pie piece. 
it's, it's like one of those, you know, those quizzes where you, you, you say, what doesn't belong in this list? I mean, these are all end uses. Electricity is an energy carrier. It's not an end use. As you'll see later, buildings consume the bulk of that electricity. So that's really where we need to focus. So uh, how many of you are going to go on the NREL tour? Good. Okay, so you'll probably get a tour of this building. It's the main office building, the research support facility. Um, it's the nation's largest net zero energy office building, which means that on an annual basis, there's enough on-site renewable energy produced to equal the amount of energy consumed by the building. How, did, what, how was that accomplished? It was accomplished by, right into the performance contract, putting a, uh, an energy goal. In this case, without the data center, it was 25,000 BTUs per square foot of total floor space per year. So this went out to, uh, to, to bids to design build teams. So the architect had to get together with the builder and they agreed, yes, we will design a building and we will build it to meet that specification. And that was done for a cost of about $260 a square foot, which is a pretty typical cost for office buildings in the Denver metro area. So there really was not a cost premium to meeting that goal. So that means that that building uses about half as much energy as an ASHRAE code compliant building. So if you look at the best code, it, it, it uses about half as much energy. To make it net zero, though, we have to uh, use uh, photovoltaics uh, on the site. And I'll show you that in a second. I just have, uh, included some pictures here. Uh, you'll see some of these things on your tour. There's a lot of daylighting, uh, a long east-west axis with lots of south-facing wall, passive solar heating, uh, internal mass. Uh, Denver has a, a very dry climate. It gets cold at night. We use that cold air to cool the building, uh, radiant ceilings. Um, just a, a, an example of some of the features. So this is the photovoltaics, the solar photovoltaics. These are modules that convert sunlight directly to electricity. They do it uh, at somewhere between 17 and 20 percent. And this is the building here. There's three wings on this building. There's 857 kilowatts on that building. That's not enough to make it net zero. We also had to bring in photovoltaics from the uh, visitor parking lot canopy and also from the main parking lot parking garage. That's, uh, that's about two and a half megawatts to power that building. The other thing that we've done at NREL is expand from net zero energy buildings to what I call all electric zero carbon districts. When you go from the individual building scale and you look at districts, it opens up whole new possibilities. You can move heat from a building that needs cooling to a building that needs heating, for example. If it's a new district, you can lay it out in a way that the, roofs don't, the buildings don't shade each other, that you have enough uh, exposed rooftop for solar photovoltaics. And so these are examples around the country of net zero energy or net zero carbon uh, districts. And there's three of them in the Denver area. This is the lowest income neighborhood in Denver. Uh, this is near the airport, Pena Station, and this National Western Center where the, the Denver Stock Show is held every January is being expanded. All right, the second of the, th the four things is electrify everything we can. So you might have seen this article recently. Berkeley is the first city in California to ban natural gas in new buildings. Like Scott said, we have to stop burning stuff. That includes natural gas for heating buildings. We have to go to electricity. And in fact, if you go to electricity and you go to heat pumps, in the last 10 years, heat pumps have become much, much more efficient. Even when the temperatures are very low outside, heat pumps operate very, very efficiently. Everybody, does everybody know what a heat pump is? I'll say it very briefly. If you've had a window air conditioner, all right, 
Imagine turning the air conditioner around backwards in the wintertime and moving the heat from the cold air outside to inside your house. And a heat pump does that automatically. It operates in both directions, okay? Electrifying transportation. I happen to own a Chevy Bolt. I, I drove it up from, uh, from Golden yesterday. Uh, these are autonomous Chevy Bolts. General, General Motors sees the Chevy Bolt as being a great thing for fleet owners to have. Why? Because if you own a fleet of vehicles, the last thing you want to do is worry about oil changes and maintaining things. Um, actually, the dealers hate these cars because you drive off and they never see you again. So I've had my car for over two years. I rotated the tires once. And I think twice I've added uh, uh, a windshield washer fluid, okay? And autonomous, uh, there's definitely a movement to make these things autonomous so they could save on paying drivers. <clears throat> um, this shows you how much of the electric car is battery. And what you've seen is the reason electric vehicles are coming down in cost is because the battery costs are dropping very, very rapidly. And this particular Bloomberg study predicts that by 2025, batteries will only be 20% of the cost, and hence very, very competitive with gasoline vehicles. I will also say that the first 350 kilowatt charging stations are being deployed right now. What does that mean? It means that you can basically get, uh, uh, let's see, 180 miles of range in 10 minutes. Once you can do that, there's really no reason to drive a gasoline vehicle anymore. So how quickly can this happen? These are two photographs of Fifth Avenue during the Easter Day Parade in New York City. On the left is 1900, on the right is 1913. On the left, it's all horse-drawn carriages. On the right, try to find a horse-drawn carriage. All right, virtually a complete transition to automobiles within that 13-year period. All right, produce the electricity with wind, solar, and storage. Uh, Scott talked about this. Uh, this is a wind farm in uh, China. Uh, this is the first offshore wind farm in the United States. Somebody brought up that, uh, um, uh, that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had complained about having a wind turbine, I think, on Martha's Vineyard. In fact, this is off Block Island. Uh, this is a 30 megawatt. It's uh, uh, five, six megawatt turbines. So it's the first offshore plant, and as a result of the success of this, we're seeing many, many more orders for offshore wind to power the northeast part of the United States. Photovoltaics, solar photovoltaics, we look at central utility scale, uh, community solar or solar gardens that you can buy into, and of course, rooftop solar. This shows you the, the, the exponential growth of renewables. Uh, the blue is, is wind, dominated by onshore wind, but with some offshore, um, and then utility scale and small scale photovoltaics. This is, uh, this is the world uh, uh, installations of these over 1,000 gigawatts. And then in Excel, about two years ago, Excel went out for bids in Colorado for new electric generation. And they were shocked when the bids came in. And the lowest bids were for wind and solar with four hours of battery storage at cost between two and four cents per kilowatt hour. In Denver, the retail cost of electricity is about 11 cents a kilowatt hour. Somebody, I heard somebody mentioning jobs before. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the two fastest growing jobs in the U.S. are number one, solar PV installer, and number two, wind turbine technician. And these are good paying jobs. The solar installer pays 39000 a year. The wind turbine, the median salary is $54,000 a year. All right, but look, 
there is a challenge here. As I mentioned before, these are variable sources of electricity. So the utility has to deal now with having, having this variable supply. What can they do about that? For one thing, it's, it's fortunate these, these two now very, very low cost of carbon-free uh, electricity um, complement each other. So this shows you an example, and, and this is for Iowa, but it shows you on an annual basis, uh, you could show, of course, in the summertime, days are longer, and there's more sunshine, less sunshine in the winter. Just the opposite for wind. The wind tends to blow more in the wintertime than in the summertime. Also on a diurnal basis, uh, the wind does tend to blow more at night during the day, and I'm guessing most of you have noticed the sun tends to shine more during the day than at night. So again, these two things complement each other. All right, so one of the things you can do is promote spatial diversity. Spread out where these things are. All right, so this is an example. Here's an example of two wind farms. Uh, so the one on the bottom only has 15 turbines, and the one on the top takes up a bigger area and is 200 turbines. And you can see that if you're a utility operator, you'd much rather deal with the output of this wind farm than the output of this wind farm, okay? So imagine if you have now multiple wind farms in multiple places and so that you have uh, ability for utility providers to grab renewable electricity from various parts. And that's what's behind the idea of developing a high voltage DC transmission network. I think Scott mentioned, you know, developing the international highway system. Imagine uh, expanding our transmission highway. So now we can pull electricity. You could pull electricity from the sunny southwest in the afternoon uh, when it's near the end of the day back east, for example. Uh, batteries, again, have come down in cost not just for vehicles, but also for home use and for central. Uh, I know Tesla has a big installation in Australia. And um, I have a PV system on my house. I have not bought a home battery yet. They're still kind of expensive, uh, but they are coming down in cost. All right, finally, we got this variable electricity demand, and I talked to you about ways to smooth out the supply. But the other way to do it is to use electricity in a way that responds to that variation. So guess what? Buildings use 75% of the electricity in the United States. So if we can control when buildings use that electricity, we can match that variable supply. So if you tour NREL tomorrow, <clears throat> one of the buildings, it's a $115 million building that was built now about uh, five, six years ago now, I guess. It's the Energy Systems Integration Facility. Every building at NREL has an acronym, so this is ESIF. And this is an office space, but back here are two levels of high bay laboratories. And this building is really dedicated to how we can integrate renewable energy into the whole electric grid. And as an example of that, this systems performance lab has three different homes modeled in the laboratory. And it's got an uh, Energy Star refrigerator, a heat pump, water heater, uh, efficient appliances, uh, a ventless heat pump dryer, all these modern energy efficient appliances, an electric car plugged in. This is one of three homes that are modeled in this space. And, and what the researchers have done is developed a home energy management system. So it, as soon as, if you go to electrify your house, for example, Excel now in, in, in the Denver metro area offers time of day pricing. So people who have electrified their homes can use a home energy management system so their electric vehicle only gets charged at night. 
Their heat pump water heater only, only heats the hot water at night. That's when electricity rates are lowest. And that's what utilities want. So there's a financial incentive to the homeowner to use electricity at a time that really benefits the utility. All right, I want to finish by saying that, unfortunately, we've waited too long to address climate change. It's a serious problem. You know, uh, uh, Scott before mentioned, you know, the four watts per square meter. Picture this. If you look at how much heat we're adding to the Earth because of what we've put in the atmosphere, that's equivalent to half a million Hiroshima bombs going off every day. That's how much heat we're adding. That's why we're seeing this, these extreme weather events, all right? We've waited too long to address it, so it's actually not enough now to stop emitting. We're going to have to figure out a way to get carbon out of the atmosphere. Get it? It's, we started at 280 parts per million. We're roughly 415 now. We've got to draw it down. And if you look um, at the models of ways to, to stay below 2 degrees C of warming, you can see all these models show at some point we're going below the zero line. So how can we do that? Um, Three basic ways. Certainly, we got to stop deforestation. We have to grow more forests and also soil stewardship. There's regenerative uh, agriculture. There are ways to, to get more carbon in the soil. Uh, go to no-till agriculture, for example, so we're not t turning the soil over. Uh, maybe go from annual crops to perennial crops. This is uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So essentially, bioenergy is sort of carbon neutral, right? You grow plants, so it takes carbon out of the atmosphere. You use those plants to produce a fuel to generate electricity. That's carbon neutral. But now, if you take that biomass and you separate out the carbon and you separate out the hydrogen and you just use the hydrogen for energy, but you bury the carbon, that becomes carbon negative. There's a path from the atmosphere down into the ground. And then finally, direct air capture. You pull the, the carbon directly out of the atmosphere. To me, as an engineer, I think that's a huge challenge. Because remember, we're talking roughly 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That means the air is 0.04% carbon dioxide. That's a tiny trace gas. It's a real powerful absorber of infrared radiation. That's why it's heating up the planet. But it's still a trace gas. So if you want to take it out of the atmosphere, you've got to move huge volumes of air. What does that mean? Lots and lots of fan power and lots and lots of surface area to capture that CO2. People are working on it. Uh, I think it's going to be a challenge getting the cost down, but we'll see. I think we need to work on all these possible solutions. All right, may, many of you have probably heard people say, look, we need an effort like World War II to address climate change. And, and I want to show you a, an example of what we did during World War II to give you an idea of what can be accomplished. And I actually saw this plant uh, last year. The, you know, the conference was in Michigan, and, and one of our tours went by this, this plant. This is a, a Ford Motor Company Willow Run, Michigan plant in 1944. This is the assembly line not producing cars anymore, producing planes. It produced a complete B-24 bomber every 63 minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's what this country is capable of. That's how we won the war. There was no way Germany and Japan could keep up with this sort of manufacturing output. Imagine if we apply this to producing wind turbines, solar photovoltaics, and really uh, giving climate change the attention it deserves. So that's what I have, and I'm, I'm happy to answer questions. <laughs>